Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the his, this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born of you to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, we just come before you this morning, um, grateful for your love. Um, through the hard times, you're grateful for your discipline, that you have promised to discipline us, to correct us um, when we need it. Um, we just thank you for that, Father. Um, we thank you that you love us and you care for us. Um, and you want what's best for us. Um, I pray for this message um, that Mark would just um, use his study this week um, and just rely on the Holy Spirit um, to bring your word um, help us grow closer to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So just as a reminder, we have talked about throughout First and Second Samuel that we are not David. He's the anointed king, we are not. And so when David does things, we shouldn't say, oh, well, I can do anything because he defeated Goliath and I need to defeat the Goliaths in my life. Now, David is our example, but we are not the, the anointed king of the Lord. Except there are times, and even David fighting Goliath, he can, he's our example. 
Um, it's about God defeating Goliath, not us defeating the Goliaths in our life. Um, and there's a reason why we, he gives us the strength to be able to defeat Goliaths in our lives so we can trust in him and rely on him. So that all being said, we're not David, but David's life, and especially moments like this, can be an example to us. That who David is, how he reacts for us is a lesson to learn by. So two weeks ago, um, we looked at and read David's sin with Bathsheba. He commits adultery. Well, first of all, he doesn't go out with the army like he should. And he lusts after Bathsheba. And then he uh, has an affair. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, tries to cover it up. And then to even further cover it up, to kill Uriah, his, her husband, and then says, don't worry about this, Joab. Don't worry about anything. This is not evil. Don't, don't worry about it. And he goes on with his life, takes Bathsheba as his wife. She gives birth to a son. And as far as we know, and well, he knows, everything is great. Everything is wonderful. Nobody knows what I did. I'm off scot-free. And so two weeks ago, how I put it was that we are just going to sit in the stew that is David's sin. That a lot of times, even as believers, and especially when we are unbelievers, when we don't trust the Lord, the sin is minimized. It's a bad thing. It's a poor choice. It's a mistake. Or as Christians, we say, yeah, that was bad, but thank goodness God forgives me. And that's all true, but it tends to minimize the severity of sin and how we talked about the wages of sin is death, whether it's a little white lie or it's committing adultery or it's murdering someone. All of it, um, all of it deserves the death penalty in the eyes of God. If not physical death, then for sure a spiritual, eternal death and it's only by the grace of God that that is not held against us. So two weeks ago we sat in the stew that is David's sin. This week we're still going to sit there for a little while until the very end. So this is this is hard stuff when we when you really get into this. This is a well-known passage right and 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 we could tend to again minimize what David did or we can minimize uh, Nathan and what he says and be like, oh, isn't that a nice story? And oh, it's all great. It ends up wonderful in the end. This is the beginning of the end of David's reign. He reigns for many, many years, but there are severe consequences to his sin. He thought his actions had been left in the past, but God had seen it and he was not pleased with David. That means he saw it as evil. David dismissed his actions. He minimized his sin, but the Lord saw the truth of what David had done. He had done evil. He had done evil against Bathsheba and Uriah and Joab and even the nation of Israel, but ultimately he committed evil against the Lord. And so, the Lord sends his prophet Nathan to confront the anointed king of the Lord. 
because David's sin could not be ignored. And it's interesting, when Nathan comes to confront David, Nathan doesn't come on his own accord. There's no indication that Nathan knew what had happened. He didn't know about David's sin with Bathsheba, which makes his confrontation with David all the more powerful. If he doesn't know and the Lord told him, and David knows that Nathan doesn't know, he knows Nathan is speaking for the Lord. There's no doubt in David's mind what is being said because it's the Lord who sent Nathan to David. It was the Lord who sent his prophet to confront David's sin. It was the Lord who could not ignore David's scorn and contempt of the Lord. That is how it's described in this. That's what sin is. David scorned the Lord. He despised the Lord. That's what David did in that sin. And it's also interesting that Nathan didn't get right to the point. Did you see that? Instead, he tells David a parable, a story that would appeal to David's heart as a shepherd. And in the parable, a rich man is unwilling to use one of his own lambs to feed a guest, and so he forcibly takes the lamb, the only lamb, of a poor man a lamb that was as a daughter to the poor man. It's very precious in his sight. And David's first reaction to this story, or maybe I should say it this way, I I find it interesting that some people, I think they read this and they go, yeah, if this happened to me or to you, you might feel trapped, right? Like, well, that's not very loving. You, You said this just to get me in trouble. It's like a parent saying, did you, did you eat a cookie when they've got chocolate all over their face? Right? You know, because you're, gonna, you're catching them in a lie. Well, this is what God does to Nathan. I'm not saying that that's wonderful to do as a parent or you should do it all the time, but we should not dismiss what God does. He, gets, he doesn't get right to the point. He tells him a parable. And this reaction of David The first reaction is emotional. Never a good point, right? When you, okay, if if you're angry when somebody confronts you and you react emotionally, does it usually work out well for you? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. With anybody, whether it's a spouse or it's a friend, you react emotionally, the first thing, there's usually a longer conversation that has to happen after that, or the relationship is broken. Well, David's reaction is emotional. This is what it says in verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. How could the man do such a thing when he has more than enough sheep of his own? It's an unjust act that in David's mind deserves the punishment of death. And then he puts his king hat on and he reacts in a legal way. In verse 6, And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. It seems that David's actually appealing to the law of God 
which is super ironic when later on Nathan says you despise the word of the Lord. He's referring or appealing to the law of God in Exodus 22.1, which reads this. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And so by his own words, David proclaims the rich man as having sinned personally against the poor man and sinned against the word of the Lord. And now the soil (laughs) is prepared for Nathan to confront David with the hard truth. You are the man. You are that man. By his own judgment, David has judged himself. Such a simple and yet powerful parable exposes the reality of David's sin. Nathan speaks the truth instead of minimizing David's sin. You are that man and then proceeds to give details. But this is the anointed king of Israel. This is the anointed king of the Lord whom Nathan is speaking to. He's not some Joe Schmo off the street. This is a man who had the power over Nathan's life. He could put him to death if he desired to. And yet, Still, Nathan refuses to candy-coat David's scorning of the Lord. Now, I've said this a number of times, I think one-on-one person, maybe I've said this in in sermons too, but growing up, my dad used to tell me that the only way to grow and to move forward in a healthy manner is to define reality. Okay, he learned this, he learned this while being a regional minister in our conference. He was a a regional minister, is over a bunch of churches. Basically, he's the pastor of, of the pastors of churches. And the goal of a regional minister is to help churches to grow, grow healthy, to be able to recognize maybe those areas that are not as healthy or are like dead and, and fix those things so you can become a more healthy church and reaching out uh, for the gospel to Christ and to expand the kingdom. And that all sounds really great, right? Until you actually expose the unhealthy parts. And many times he would go into churches and he would say, okay, we're going to do a poll. We're going to take tests. We're going to evaluate with everybody. We're going to bring it all together. And then this is what's going to tell us what's healthy and what's not. You're going to determine what's healthy and what's not. And then he would bring those results to the leadership of that church and say, this thing and this thing is sick and you need to change this. And every once in a while, the church would go, yeah, but we don't really want to. We're kind of happy with that. And he said, but you want to be healthy, right? Yes. Here's where you're sick. You need to fix this. No, no, we're good. We're good. And almost inevitably, over time, the church dies. It's dead because the sickness just grows. Or give more of a personal I haven't done this, but if I break my leg, and maybe you've broken a leg, if I break my leg, ignoring it does nothing for the healing process, right? (laughs) If it's at a 90-degree angle, and I sit there and I go, no, that's all right, you're going to go, no, it's not, your leg is broken. And if you don't fix it now, you're going to have issues for the rest of your life. 
But if I call my broken leg what it is, a broken leg, then I can get the proper care and in time be healthy. That's the way it is with sin. To call what David did a bad decision or a mistake is to minimize the reality of his sin. It's not healthy for David. You know what, David? You just do better next time. Just just try harder next time. That does nothing for David. God doesn't mince words with him. Over my life, I have have grown the, the reputation of just saying it like it is. If you like to, if, if you want advice and you want someone to just to pat you on the back or to minimize it, don't come to me. And at, at times it can be sinful on my part, which is a whole other issue, and then I got to confess it and all that kind of stuff, okay? But if you want to know, my mom would ask, my, ask me if she looked good in a dress instead of my father. Why? Because my father was smarter than I was. But she knew I would tell the truth. Again, that gets you in trouble, does it not? Doesn't work with my wife all that well, and I've learned my lesson, right? Because that makes it sound like she sounds looks bad all the time. That is not what I'm saying. All right, get back on the notes because this is going to be a hole that I can't get out of. Anyway, when it comes to sin, we cannot minimize it. We've got to call it what it is. God doesn't mince words with David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And then he says later on, because you have despised me. Or even later on, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The words despise and scorn, that means to show contempt for, to spurn, to disrespect the Lord. What you did is utterly deplorable in the eyes of God. Do you realize that, David? And this is the hard truth that David has to hear. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and his own words have judged him. If he's caught in a trap, he's caught in a trap of his own making. This is the anointed king of the Lord. He's the king of God's people. Who is this man, Nathan, to come and talk to the king in such a manner? But, and if, if David was an ordinary king... That would be his mindset. Who are you to talk to me? But David's not an ordinary king. Despite his sin, he is still a man after God's own heart, which is why David is held as such a high standard. Man, he messed up. He committed adultery and murder. Literally. None of us, I hope, have reached that level of murder. And when he's confronted by it, despite that, when he hears the words of the Lord through Nathan, he realizes this is not Nathan speaking because Nathan doesn't know about the sin. God must have revealed it to him. This is God speaking directly to me. What does he do? He repents. We only hear David speak twice in this passage. With one He reveals his own condemnation, and then with the other, he reveals his repentance. Verse 13, all he says is, I have sinned against the Lord. 
I have sinned against the Lord. David recognizes his wrongdoing. He's been exposed to himself. What he's done is finally made clear to him. But interestingly, he doesn't doesn't speak of sinning against Bathsheba or Uriah or Job. That's all true. He understands ultimately who he sinned against. He sinned against God. He makes no excuses. He doesn't blame Bathsheba for taking a bath. Well, if she just wouldn't have taken a bath, then I wouldn't be. It's all her fault. He doesn't blame Uriah for not going into his wife. Well, if Uriah would have gone in, I mean, then everybody would think it was his son that was born. He doesn't blame Joab for putting up uh, putting Uriah on the front line and killing him. You knew this was wrong, Joab. Why did you do what I asked you to do? This is all your fault. Don't we, don't we do that with our own lives? Oh, this isn't my fault. You don't have to be a parent to understand that kids do this all the time, right? Why did you punch your brother in the face? He looked at me weird. It's his fault. Why did you react that way to your boss? Well, because he's a jerk. Like it's his fault that you reacted wrongly. We do that all the time. David doesn't do that. He admits his sin. I have sinned against the Lord. I have scorned the Lord. I have despised the Lord and his word. I and I alone have done this. And we hear the depth of his repentance and David's words in Psalm 51 that we, that we just read together. I have sinned against you alone, he says. My iniquities are ever before me. Create in me a clean heart, God, because I am dirty. Renew my spirit. Change me. God, do something in me because now I see what I've done to you. Forgive me. Instead of dismissing his sin, instead of making excuses for his sin, David admits his sin. David calls it what it is. And David even says that God is right in judging him so harshly. We like to make, make the statement, or maybe we should say, we hear the statement, all right, a loving God would not really do that. Now, there's a lot in that statement that we don't have time to get into that's all wrong. But David sees, he says in Psalm 51, verse 4, after he just said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God, you were right in judging me harshly. You were right in calling me out. Just saying these words means nothing. But when you hear them combined with, when he says, I've sinned against the Lord, It's not just words for David. This is a heartfelt change. Psalm 51 are the words of a repentant heart. And the beautiful thing is God hears him. He hears it. 
and he sees his heart. Though David has pronounced his own death as the rightful punishment for his sin against God, God grants him life. His words of repentance are more than simply spoken. They're a confession. And God, when he hears it, he says through the prophet Nathan, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. These words think maybe we take them for granted. These are profoundly amazing words to hear. According to Deuteronomy chapter 19, anyone who intentionally kills another will be put to death themselves. That's the right judgment. You must die. And yet, the Lord spares David. And we're not told why. We're not told that Okay, you feel bad about it. Okay, I'll, I'll spare your life. We're not told why. He's just granted life instead of death. He's shown mercy when mercy is not deserved. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't any consequences for David. The Lord will still take David's wives away from him, and he will give them to his neighbor all in the sight of this son, which is a weird statement, but what that means is that it's going to be public. It's not going to be hidden like his sin. What you did was in private. Guess what? What I'm going to do to you is going to be in front of all the nation of Israel. In the coming chapters, we're actually going to see that this neighbor is actually his son Absalom, who will take away David's wives and his kingdom from his hands. And so, like with all sin, there are always earthly consequences. Always. Even if they aren't immediately seen. But there is a greater consequence of sin, a greater judgment for despising and scorning the Lord, and the Lord's justice has to be served. And this is where this story gets really hard. David's life is spared but the son to be born to him by Bathsheba will die in his place. David's son pays the price for David's sin. And the natural question is, how can God do such a thing? Why would God take the life of a baby who had no involvement in this situation? It's not this this boy's fault that he was born to an adulterous relationship. Why would God do such a thing? (laughs) I can't answer that question because we're not told. We could speculate and we can wonder, but in the end, we're not told why God takes the life of this son other than because you did this, David, your son will die. All I can say and all we can say when we look at the whole of Scripture is that God always knows best. He always does good. He is always righteous in His ways. And though taking the life of this child is unfair in my eyes, and it is, it's unfair, it is not my justice which must be met, but God's. 
Because ultimately when we sin, the sin is before the Lord. The focus of this passage is not trying to see all the nuances. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why would God do this to this child? It's to focus on the consequences of sin. Yes, again, there are earthly consequences, but ultimately the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and it's David's son who pays, pays the wage of David's sin. That's hard. <laughs> and then Nathan goes home. That's how it ends. He goes back to his house. He spoke what he had to speak, and then he walks away. And we're left just hanging there. What's going to happen? Is God really going to take the life of this child? How is David going to react? How's the nation of Israel going to react? But we're not there yet. We have to sit in his, the stew of his sin even more. Now, there are three lessons that I see for us today in this passage. First, and I think this is going to probably, well, the first and second lessons I think are going to be the hardest for us to hear because of our own sinfulness and our own humanity. So the first lesson, are we willing to confront a brother or sister in Christ who is in sin? When God reveals sin or we see sin in a brother or sister, are we willing to follow Nathan's example and confront them Christ said to his disciples in Luke chapter 17, verse 3, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. To rebuke is to reprove or to admonish. And in practical terms, that means confront that sin. Call it what it is. Not out of anger, not out of hatred, not out of selfish gain, and certainly not out to hurt or to destroy. We have to check our own hearts there's a passage, right, that Christ says to his disciples, when you confront a brother, and this is specifically <clears throat> in church discipline, that when you see a brother in sin or a sister in sin, you got to check your own heart. Look at the log in your own eye before you call out the speck in your brother's eye. What that means is, you know what, you're just as sinful as they are. You're in the same boat as them. In fact, your sin is probably worse than their sins, just that nobody knows about it yet. So look at the log in your own eye, recognize your sinfulness and your need for grace and mercy and to be confronted before you go and confront someone else's sin. In other words, have your heart right and realize I want to help you in this. Not to kick you out of the church, but to help you to grow, to fight that sin. What can I do to help you in doing this? I've had a number of people in my own life call me out on that. And from my point of view, I'm okay with that. I'm like, yeah, do that. If you see me in sin, do that. The look on their face, I'll be honest, is kind of entertaining to me because you could tell what we're all feeling. Like, how is he going to react to this? He's going to feel like I hate him. He's going to get mad, which is the next lesson. We're going to get there. Okay, but this first one, are we willing to call a brother or sister out in sin for their own spiritual good? Are we willing to speak the hard truth in Christ 
so that they may repent. The whole of Luke 17, 3 reads this. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So the goal of rebuking a brother in sin is not to destroy their reputation. It's so that they may repent, not to you, to the Lord. So that's the first lesson. Second lesson, when we are rebuked for our sin, are we willing to repent? Are we willing to follow David's example? Are we willing to let go of our pride? Are we willing to humble ourselves before the Lord? Are we willing to see our sin for what it is, despising and scorning the Lord and His Word? That's what sin is. It's not a mistake. It's despising God and deserves eternal death. It puts it on a whole different level, doesn't it? A whole different level. Are we willing to repent of that sin? Are we willing to seek forgiveness from God, turning away from our sin and towards Him? Are we willing to listen to our brother or sister in Christ who loves us and cares for us, knowing that they would expect the same from us to them? Now, the third lesson is to realize that there are consequences for our sin. Yes, sin severs relationships here on earth. It has a major effect for a believer between us and God that we've put up a barrier, which is why we need to repent of that sin. It can even cause physical pain. But there are deeper consequences at stake. If the wages of sin is death, then my sin earns me my death. My sin against the Lord, my scorning and despising of Him requires God's judgment and rightfully earns me eternal death. So what am I supposed to do? What, what can I do to fix this? Well, there's nothing I can do. But there is something that God has done. God sent His own Son to take away my own sin, your own sin. And he put it upon himself. He took the penalty of death for my sin. Now, there's not a one-to-one correlation between David's sin going upon his son because Jesus is the anointed king and he never sinned. And, you know, there's not a one-to-one correlation. But there is a, there is a lesson here. There's a type. There's a, a, a type of focus on Christ. David's sin was put upon his son. Our sin is put upon his son. He paid the wage that I earned. He died upon that cross. He paid the price so that I might become a child of God and experience the grace of God. And so if you believe and you trust in Christ, in His sacrifice upon the cross, if you believe in the shedding of His blood that it washed you as white as snow, if you believe that He died so that you may live eternally, then guess what? You got you got it. You got life. You've got eternal life. He's granted that. He's given that to you. There is no sin that you, commit, that you can commit that will take you away from that. But your sin will affect your relationship with God. It will affect your relationship with your church. It will affect your relationship with anyone around you. 
And so when we confess as believers, when we confess before God as believers, it's not like Christ died again and I've got to be saved again. No. Can I say this? Once saved, always saved. Does that just make anybody really angry? This what scripture says, it's a good synopsis. No one can take you away from the love of God. Nothing and no one will remove you from the family of God. But that doesn't mean you can't mess up that relationship a little bit. If you are married or in marriage, marriage is the covenant between two people that is for life. And when I say stupid things like my wife doesn't look good and getting myself in a hole, that doesn't mean I'm not married to Katie anymore. It means that she needs to show me grace, praise the Lord, and forgive me for my stupidity. But if I do not acknowledge that I have hurt her, if I do not acknowledge that I've sinned against her, it creates a barrier, does it not? If you've got two friends and you sin against your friend and you refuse to acknowledge it, it creates a barrier, does it not? How much more so with the God of heaven? To sin against God does not remove me from his family. What it does is it creates a barrier. There's something not right. And God reminds us, confess your sin to me. Acknowledge what you've done. Like David, you will not surely die because I've already died for you. But let's restore that relationship again. Submit to me, love me. So my sin was placed upon God so that I could live eternally. And if we're a believer and we realize that, we need to not sit in the stew of David's sin anymore. We need to sit in the beautiful, profound truth that redemption is found in the midst of judgment for us. Redemption, we are redeemed, we are bought back. Salvation is given to us from the wrath of God for our sin. Grace is freely given instead of judgment that we rightly deserve. How awesome is our God? How awesome is He? How great is His loving kindness towards those who confess and repent their sin against Him? How boundless is His grace for those who, as David says, have a broken and contrite heart? Can we let go of ourselves and bask in, and the beauty of the forgiveness of God who took the judgment away from me and put it on his son so that I may live. If you've experienced that abundant mercy of the Lord, then give him praise. That's where we just go, yeah, amen, 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 amen. And it helps us to then, when we see the sin in our brother or sister or others around us who don't love God, it gives us desire to show grace and mercy and patience because we realize they haven't sinned against me, they've sinned against the Lord. Now, if you have not experienced the abundance of mercy of, of the Lord, then here's, here's the message to you and here's the message of David's words to you. Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Experience the steadfast love and abundant mercy of the Lord. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He doesn't say, you might be saved. 
you will be saved. For though Christ took the penalty of death for us, death couldn't hold him. He defeated death by being raised again to life. He secured eternal life for all of those who believe. And so believe and repent. And do it to the praise and the honor and the glory of God. Without him, as Elm Creek, we have no hope. But praise be to God for his steadfast love and mercy. Father, I pray that you would use these words as always to remind us who we are in you as your people, to convict us of sin, give us the, to give us the courage to call one another out in sin for our own good, to be fearless, Father, in speaking the truth to those in our life who do not believe, who have not repented, to show grace and mercy to those around us because you have shown us great grace and mercy. To know that without you, Father, saving us, forgiving us, removing our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, not holding it against us, that, Father, we we would justly and rightly deserve death for all eternity, but you changed that. And you changed our hearts so that we would humbly come before you and say, I have sinned against you, God. Remind us who we are in you as your people. And for those who are here who have yet to give their life to Christ, I pray, Father, you would change their heart. Let them humble themselves before you to see their sin for what it is, and to experience your mercy and grace for the first time and give you praise and glory. We ask this, Father, in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our final song together?